on the job with Fred Sleet and Sally Rugg. It's On The Job, the podcast, all about making your working life better. My name is Francis Leach. My name's Sally Rugg, and not everything I say on the podcast necessarily reflects the views of my employer. And everything I say on the podcast is the consequence of one too many Billy Bragg albums. How are you going, Sally? Do you know what? Like, I'm okay. We're recording this on Tuesday, the, the 9th of March. So last night was the second Four Corners episode looking at the allegations of sexual assault levelled at the Attorney-General, Christian Porter. I'm okay. I feel a little bit exhausted. I feel a sort of latent stress and distress over the last few weeks, Um, but I'm happy to be having this chat today. How are you feeling, Francis? I'm a bit the same, but from my perspective, watching everything that's unfolded, it's been uh, despairing to watch the lack of progress in the thinking of men on how to deal with this issue. Let's let's open this right up with our guest, our first guest today. We're going to catch up with the TV freak a little later on for a new segment called Jobs on TV, which is going to be the fun bit where we talk about uh, jobs on TV. So today we're going to focus on taxi drivers in the world of television. Should be a lot of fun, but Karen Percy is with us here, a former colleague of mine from the ABC, outstanding journalist uh, who has worked many, many years uh, across some of the biggest stories of the last 20 years, particularly when it comes to the court system and what. Whatnot. And she's also part of the Media Entertainment and Arts Alliance and a new project that they've launched to enhance online safety for women in the media. And she's part of On The Job today. Hi, Karen. Welcome to our little podcast. How are you? Very well. Thanks so much for having me. And I'm kind of feeling a bit the same. I'm a bit on edge and, you know, things aren't quite what they should be, partly because of what both of you are talking about. So little progress have been made. I think of my career in the 30-odd years I've been in the journalism industry and just not enough has changed and we really need to force change this time, whether it's sexual harassment policies, equal pay, equal opportunity – Dare I say that word, quotas. You know, you will talk to your colleagues and friends and, and uh, confidants in your workplaces and also within your working lives and taking the temperature of, of women and how they feel more generally about the events of the last couple of weeks. For me and the women I have spoken to over the last week in particular, the sense that I feel and share is that women are obviously shocked at an allegation of rape and sexual assault being levelled at the highest law officer in the land. Like, that is shocking. But um, what I have found profoundly disturbing has actually been the response to this allegation, the response from Prime Minister Morrison to swat away any calls for an independent inquiry. That has been really shocking to me. The other aspect of it too, Karen, and I saw Annabelle Crabb talk about this on the last episode of Insiders, was the idea of the rule of law. Now, from where the Prime Minister has been talking about it and the Attorney General, it has been about process for the alleged, but the rule of law also encompasses justice for victims and the accuser as well, and that seems to be totally absent from their thinking. Absolutely. And there's a presumption that the rule of law is only about policing. And I think that goes to this independent inquiry is that there's still this very big question mark over the Attorney General and and what happened back then. So I think that there needs to be um, some kind of process to assure 
voters to assure the people who are working within the parliament, as uh, Sally's saying, it's a workplace. The parliament is a workplace that somehow is not subjected to the same laws that the rest of us are having to abide by. And I think that it's important that there be justice and justice seen to be done as well. There is an assumption of innocence. That is certainly the, the premise of any kind of justice. But that doesn't mean somebody can just say, well, I'm innocent. I'm going to self-evaluate and say there's nothing to see here. It's just not that simple. If it was, there would be no work for any lawyers in this town anywhere because you'd just be able to say, well, I didn't do it. There was a really powerful piece in the Adelaide Advertiser written by a man called Nick Ryan, who was a close friend of the woman who is now deceased. And this piece written by Nick, and he wrote at the end of it that the presumption of innocence is meant to be a starting point and that Christian Porter, we have to assume that he is innocent here. But there are some really, really credible allegations that need to be tested and investigated, in my opinion. We did an episode a couple of weeks ago, Sally, on sexual harassment in the workplace, and we had some very strong individual testimonies from people telling their stories. This compounds all of that. This, in a way, highlights again just how structural the sense of entitlement it is for men, the power structures that are built for men, enforced by men and protect men in the workplace. I just want to ask both of you, if you if you were to ask men what they need to do to change what's going on, what would you say? Because in the end, it is a problem for men to fix, not women, isn't it? Absolutely. And we've done as much as we can. You know, it's time for men to stand up. If you see toxic behaviour, you know, call it out. If somebody's making a rude joke or a, a jibe at somebody, call it out. You know, you say not all men... Um, somehow it's too many men, you know, to use that cliche that feminists throw around all the time. But it is. It's time for men to stand up to amplify the voices of the women around them, but to understand the level of anger, the visible, visceral anger. Um, You know, our politicians are so out of touch on that, is that I was a debater in Adelaide in the 1980s. I was several years before all of this happened. But there was this um, culture of, of private school boys and private school girls where it was knockabout and, you know, it was like, you want to play with us, you have to play by our rules. And it was pretty toxic. And even now when I think about it, it makes me angry because I was so often dismissed and it was just like, well, what would we want for you? We just, we have to have you here because they tell us that the women have to be here. And that does not appear to have changed in our federal parliament. That's what's shocking to me. And now we've heard Julie Bishop, the former deputy prime minister and foreign minister, to say, yeah, we've got a problem. Now, I wish she and Malcolm Turnbull and all of these other people who are coming out of the woodwork now had said something and done something when they had the power. But what does that tell us? That they didn't think they could or should at a time when they could have actually affected some change. That's a problem. No more excuses then, Sally, is there? Yeah, absolutely not. It's classic Turnbull to start saying things after he's, you know, after he's left the Prime Minister. His rearview mirror is uh, the size of the sun. It's <laughs> the best. Woulda, coulda, shoulda. Exactly. And I think what it speaks to is the fact that men who perpetrate sexual assault are not cartoon villains hiding in alleyways. You know, they hide in plain sight among friends who refuse to believe that their mate could possibly perpetrate sexual assault. And that refusal for a lot of men, that was particularly on show last week. So 
in answer to your question, what's something that I wish that men would change or think about? I would love it if men in general would just consider, you know, in the words of Christian Porter, just imagine for a second that your mate actually could be capable of committing sexual assault because it cannot be the case that most women know someone who's been sexually assaulted, but no men know anyone who's committed sexual assault. I would just like to add that I think one of the important things is for them to actually start to think about it from another perspective is that there's a lot of willful blindness, a lot of closed minds going on about la, 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 la. It's not me. I'm not doing it. I'm not perpetrating any of this or upholding any of this, but you're also not doing anything to stop it. So we need men of all ages to be having conversations. We need mothers and fathers of teenage boys and young boys to be having those conversations about what it really means to respect and to understand and to want women to do well. Karen, you are part of a project which is in a way an extension of this because online bullying, online emotional violence against women and against female journalists is it's rife, it's rampant, it's, it's, it's everywhere. Awful. But it's also almost this, a piece of the same puzzle, isn't it? We're Absolutely. Not, we're not that far away from from this issue on that. So tell us about Enhancing Online Safety of Women in the media project that you're involved in and give us a bit of a background into what it is and what it's trying to address. So the Media Entertainment Arts Alliance, I'm the co-vice president of the media section. We have been doing some work with Gender Equity Victoria, the sort of peak body looking at equality issues in Victoria, as well as um, Australian Community Monitors, I think they're called themselves anyway. It started with a project a couple of years ago called Don't Read the Comments, which is always the thing that was told to women, oh, don't read the comments about the stories that you wrote, because invariably any comments about the story were gendered. It's just like you're dumb, you're a bitch, you're fat, you're, you know, frigid, you're a slut, whatever it is. And I've had that in emails that have come through to my email system about when I was covering court cases where there was any kind of woman involved. It was just really vile language, violent language. And my you know, male colleagues just don't get that. So it used to be that employers said, well, just don't read the comments or don't be online or whatever it is. So uh, Gender Equity Victoria, Mia, um, we've gone through this two or three year process of discussions about what kind of hate there is online for women. We had a, a round table with employers and other groups to sort of say, what are you doing and what do you think you should be doing? And most recently looking at moderating what kinds of things that organisations can do to control the comments. And it's about ensuring that the people who want to comment are visible. Who are they? Can you kick them off? Can you get them to sign up to a code of conduct? What are the obligations of employers who have people who are moderating comments? Because it's that if that's all you're doing, if you're just moderating comments all the time, and it's very rarely the person who's going to come in and say, I really love what you've done on the refugee front or the lesbian, you know, LB, it, like nobody ever comes on really on the online space and says we really love this. I, that's me. I'm dropping into the comments being like, really good, love thank what you. you're doing on the lesbian thank front. You, thank you. Thank <laughs> you. But there's not Ma'am, nearly this is enough a story of it. Most about of it is, yeah, most of it's just toxic crap that shouldn't ought to be there. And so there's these guidelines that are out there. That was the most recent wonderful work that Gender Equity Victoria has done and me has done to ensure that these, this is best practice for employers. But it's also great for the people who are working in the social media space to be able to know, actually, this is what's expected. Both of you have been subject to it. Sally, I know during the, uh, the marriage equality debate, you would have copped a lot of it as well. And to give people an understanding of the the impact it has on you, can you give us a bit of a sense of how you navigated that uh, during that time when you were very visible, campaigning brilliantly as you did for, for change? I mean, during the marriage campaign, I got 
terrible homophobia and a sort of misogynistic flavoured homophobia, which is a real delight. But strangely, like during the campaign, it was so like it wasn't just directed at me. It was directed all over the place. Not that that makes it better, but it certainly it was really just part of the work at that point in time. Whereas the abuse I get now, I always feel quite surprised by because, you know, I'll be talking about like something that I think is totally innocuous, but it doesn't necessarily seem to be that people are upset with the subject matter, but more women visibly talking about things they care about can upset people. It's about Um, silencing us. It's about wiping us from history. It's about basically you don't deserve a role here. You don't deserve to take up space. And it's all about the violent language is about putting us in our place. And it's usually from men who are less intelligent, less informed, who have a whole lot of field opinions with, you know, not a lot of currency anywhere else who just use this way as as just, you know, you're dumb, you don't know what you're talking about. Oh, she's, you know, she claims to abide by the code of ethics, which is on my Twitter handle because the code of ethics is a really central part of being a journalist and who I am. I used to think it was just the equivalent of the boys pulling your pigtails in the playground at school. And some of it is that, but it's mostly, it's actually designed to stop you having a role and a voice. And that's why we have to be all the more determined to take up space. And I really take my hat off to you, Sally, because you take it back to those folks all the time and, and sort of, here are my facts, here are my facts, here's what I know, and here, here's the research. But it doesn't matter for a lot of these guys. It's just about destructo. It's just about getting in there and hurting. And let's not forget the scenario, the setup where a lot of women are reading these kinds of things, uh, particularly in the past year with work from home. You know, they might be living alone. They're sitting, you know, reading it on their own in their phone or at their computers where they're alone. And that kind of stuff can really mess with your head, which is exactly the point. Um, And sometimes I know um, younger colleagues of mine would be very reluctant to say anything to their employer because they've done it before and there's a whole lot of toughen up princess and you know what do you expect or you know don't read the comments get off social media but these young women intrinsically know that when their male colleagues have no barriers in this that it's actually not just a workplace issue it's a you know you're not going to get the kinds of opportunities or promotions because you're not out there and you're not as brave and you're not as confident because you know the blowback is going to be personal. So we know that in recent years, there has been significant erosion of trust in many public institutions, including the media. So I I wonder whether you have seen disrespect levelled at female journalists and the abuse experienced by female journalists, whether you've seen a rise in that. I think... Yes, because we're seen as an easy target and because it can be so gendered, it's easy. You don't actually have to mount an argument. You don't have to put up facts or research or anything. You just put your field opinions out there, throw a few slurs, gendered, racist, whatever it is, and that is your argument. And it does shut people down because they're so taken aback by the vitriol and the level of hate there is a, an inter- interesting dynamic going on about the trust in the media and it's something that I'm very passionate about and, and you know, enforcing the code of ethics. The Media Entertainment Arts Alliance, we used to be the Australian Journalists Association, we've had this code of ethics since the 1940s. It's a, not a perfect document by any means, but it, it really does set some standards on how we should be behaving um, and what we should be doing. But, you know, things are blurred or different in the, the digital age because everything's so much quicker. The metrics of KPIs 
and clicks have muddied the waters and we're kind of all adjusting to that. And I think content has changed and the way we pitch content, market content has changed and it's not all bad. And it's now very hard to kind of, you've got this very diverse audience and it's really hard to be something to everybody. So I understand it and I I think there's some misunderstanding about how the media works and the role of the media. You know, through the pandemic, Victorians getting really mad at journalists asking hard questions of Dan Andrews. It's just like, that is the very job. We are here to hold people to account. Now, there were some, you know, sense that people were going for the jugular and going personal. But in the main, the media's job is to do exactly that, to be the pain in your ass. That is my very role as a journalist, is to actually make you feel uncomfortable, make you justify what you're doing because you're doing it on behalf of taxpayers. So it's important that we understand better the role. Having said that, I think the media has not been as responsive to concerns about the craft and how we do it. You know, we're all, oh, we're audience focused, says every media organisation in the country, but at the same time only listens to part of that audience. So we've got a PR problem, but I think there's no one answer. There's no one cause. We have to rebuild trust. We have to educate to some degree. Karen, just to wind it up here, what do employers fundamentally have to do according to the Australian Media Moderation Guidelines? Give us some anchors here that will actually improve the security and safety and the confidence for female journalists that they can do their job without being abused or threatened? They need to empower those who are moderating for starters to be able to kick people off a platform and say and take stuff down very quickly. I actually think there should be a, a preventative. If you want to comment on ABC News's Facebook page, we want to know something about you. We want to know an address, we want to know a phone number and we're going to actually hold all of But I also think that women need to, women writers, women who are content makers who are putting their material out there um, need to be protected from uh, some of these comments. I was getting emails that came through the internal email system that should have picked up words like, see you next Tuesday, and somehow didn't. But, you know, stuff that should not be getting through systems is getting through systems directly to reporters. But also, I think a bit of pre-planning is like, you know, certain stories are going to attract a certain kind of response. So in Facebook, you can't turn off the comments a lot of the time or you or you have to take a story down if you can't moderate it any longer. So, well, maybe you don't put it on that particular platform or maybe you only put a part of it. But I think that employers need to be much more proactive in, in anticipating issues, giving their reporters, content makers, agency and also a reporting system to be able to say, this is what's happened to me, what are you going to do about it? Karen, thank you very much for being on the job with us. You can go to the website meaa.org to find out more about the moderation guidelines. We'll put a link in our uh, our show notes as well, and we'll catch you. We'll have to get you back soon again. That would be great. Thank you so much. G'day, Francis here. Now, finding out accurate info about your rights at work and what wages you should be paid can be difficult. So why not give the Australian Union Support Centre a call? It's completely free and confidential, and the Support Centre is completely independent. Their number is 1300 486 466. 1300 486 466. It's On The Job, the podcast all about making your working life better. Now, Sally, I wanted to do this next segment because I think we need to educate you a little bit about the world of television. Sorry, I haven't heard of it. <laughs> it's a new phenomenon. <laughs> it's a little box that sits in your house and pictures and people appear on it. Wow. <laughs> What, and what effect will it have on the radio? 
<laughs> well, it's supposed to have killed the radio show, but it didn't because we're here doing podcasts. But the idea here is that, you know, when you watch a television show, there's all sorts of people being depicted doing jobs. So I thought, on the job, why don't we look at jobs on TV? Yeah, exactly. And I can imagine... You know, if you were to grow up watching a lot of TV and film and stuff, your first impression of what a job is and is not would be based on the cultural depictions you've seen on TV, right? Is this? I wanted to be a helicopter, a uh, helicopter pilot, <laughs> running around some national park chasing a kangaroo around because I watched Skippy as a kid. I wanted to be a dog trainer because I had a dog. So <laughs> see how our aspirations were informed. <laughs> Well, we've got just the man to help us with our Jobs on TV occasional segment. It is Scott Goodings, the TV freak, Australia's number one TV expert, joins us here on the job for the very first time. Hey, Scotty, how are you going? Oh, great, Francis. Hi, Sally. Now, I love this. This is, this is two universes colliding because Sally had a, a non-TV upbringing and it, she's become this incredible powerhouse of knowledge, information, advocacy, no that's, TV in her life. That's a really kind thing to say. I just want to pick up and say that's really nice but yeah I do have a, a, extraordinary gaps in terms of someone will hum a jingle from an advertisement or mention a yeah a cultural reference that is meant to be widely understood and it's just yeah. humble weeds. Apparently my mum brought me home from hospital after three days faced me against the couch cushions and then she went out the kitchen came back and apparently I'd rolled over and I was already watching TV at four <laughs> days old so that's where it started for me I think it was a Matlock Police episode I, I can't quite recall Matlock Police I'll have to explain it to you some other time so jobs on TV our first task for you Scott looking at jobs on TV I thought we'll go to taxi drivers in television shows some of the best ones some of the weirdest ones and some of the ones that uh, that maybe didn't quite work where do we start with this one I think one of the things is depictions of taxi drivers on television a lot of them have been very negative stereotypes of racial lines, not real nice, not a great coverage of the career that it can be. I think the, the classic TV show about taxis would be Taxi, the 1978 American sitcom set in the Sunshine Cab Company in Manhattan, produced and created by James L. Brooks, who did Mary Tyler Moore, Rhoda, Room 22. It, it's a hodgepodge of taxi drivers led by Danny DeVito playing Louie, this tyrannical job dispatcher. But it, it launched the career of, um, I think really of Christopher Lloyd. He who did he play in, in Taxi? He played the eccentric Reverend Jim, who came in later. Um, the much lamented, much gone uh, Andy Kaufman played Latka. Mary Lou Hanna, who I've seen on a lot of shows, she has the most amazing memory. She can remember everything from her childhood, every day. She played a, a single mum with two kids, a fine artist, who had to take on the career of a, a cab driver. So there's a bit of social realism in Taxi where, you know, the idea of actually having a single mother on sort of mainstream television was a bit different, wasn't it? Amongst them, yeah. And the, the episodes, I watched a couple of episodes last week, and the ones I loved were when the cab company collapsed at one stage, so they all had to go and get jobs. Tony Danza, who was in Who's the Boss Lady? He was a Vietnam vet cab driver. He became a debt collector for a, a gambling overlord. Mary Lou Hanna character became uh, a secretary. Andy Kaufman character became a waiter. And I love the episodes that delve into that. There was a Judd Hirsch episode where he got held up as a taxi driver. And his, his next few nights, he just couldn't pick up any drivers, any any passengers, because he was so traumatised by it. And eventually he became a waiter, but then the gang talked him into coming back. And another one was when 
uh, an episode, Memories of Cab 804, when a cab was a month away from hitting half a million miles. So that all the gangs sat around but got crashed and totaled. And the gang just sat around reminiscing on their favourite memories, again held up, yeah, meeting a boyfriend and girlfriend in the cab. So I really think it was a bit of a, a not, not just a, a fish out of water normal sitcom like Gilligan's Island, you know, where they're just all brought together. It really, it really did look some of the, the serious aspects of the job as a taxi driver. You know how doctors and nurses, health professionals, watch shows like Grey's Anatomy or Scrubs or whatever and they're just like, oh, please, like this is – you'd never do that to a patient or just like, oh, God, what? Or like you, that's just so unreal. Do you think taxi drivers would have watched the show and thought the same or do you think they probably – Felt like it was a pretty good representation. No, I think it was the um, a really great representation. Being the seventies, they hadn't quite had you know the beaded, um, you know the beaded seat covers. The that, yeah, yeah. That they What's have the that. story with them? <laughs> uh, well, there's actually an episode we can talk about later. Bob's Burgers, and he in that series, Bob takes on a job moonlighting as a cab driver, and he sort of looks at it and goes, "Oh, oh, you know those <laughs> things, those things." And of course, when he sits down. Oh, he sort of almost starts moaning, realizing <laughs> the benefits. What might be missing out? The on? benefits of it, yeah. Um, How long did Taxi run for? It ran Sorry. ran for about six or seven series, yeah, and it you know it launched the careers, I suppose, of um, Tony Danza. Uh, but the other thing about it is the amazing theme to it too. The opening of it is very melancholy. There is no cast in the credits. It's just a lone cab driving around the streets of New York over, I think, what is the Brooklyn Bridge. And it's got this real, you know, 70s New York jazz club theme. <laughs> uh, it's, it, 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 it puts the show on the map, if nothing else, for that really cool jazz theme. And Christopher Lloyd was bringing that. Let's have a listen to him in action in Taxi. Oh, please wait. Rio de Janeiro to here, do you know how far that is? 6,842 miles. Well, Look. Do you know what kind of mail system they must have? The Brazilian mail system <laughs> is government run with an annual budget of 27 million. <laughs> 485,000 pesetas. How do you know these things? You mean I'm right? (laughs) (laughs) I wasn't even sure if pesetas was the right money. (laughs) There he is, Christopher Lloyd. In taxi. I still can see it on Australian TV now if we want to chase it. Or do we, is YouTube our friend if we want to reinvestigate that? YouTube or you you can do the right thing and buy the DVDs. Yeah. <laughs> I've got the complete box set. And this does not surprise me. Revisited last week. <laughs> okay, we're doing jobs on TV. We're talking taxi drivers. What about closer to home? Was there, is there, have we had Australian taxi drivers or, or, or uh, vehicle drivers on our TV screens represented? There, there was a chauffeur service in Neighbours. I mean, chauffeurs are always seen as the you know, high yeah, end. fancy. <laughs> and uh, Helen Daniels, and had a, she, she had a, a business set in Erinsborough called Home James. Um, oh, and, and occasionally she had to fill in. She was the, the grandmother. Um, Sally of, of Neighbours, she occasionally had to fill in, suit up, 
you know, put the hat on, looking like Parker from the Thunderbirds <laughs> as the chauffeur. And then um, and, uh, Peter O'Brien, Shane Ramsey, filled in. And there was a great, well, it was not a great plot line where there was an accident and he was given a, a glass of brandy after the accident by someone, so he was charged with manslaughter. Anyway, we're just spinning off into Neighbours. But, yeah. <laughs> but uh, the other one, though, if we can jump into Uber drivers, a couple of years ago on ABC there was a series, Diary of an Uber Driver, which was a six-part series based on a blog by an Uber driver, Ben Phillips. Watched this again the other day. I loved it. Uh, the actor, Sam Cotton, he's so understated in it, so sympathetic. You know, one of his opening lines as the, the passengers get out is, don't forget, don't forget my five stars. So he, <laughs> he has discussions, you know, with his passengers about what their rating is and what they can do to boost it. But also things like people get in the cab. Now, you know, with an Uber, you know where everyone's going. So he just sort of says, how are you going? And the people just give him this death stare and they don't talk to him the whole way. So it does give you that feeling of what it would like to be an Uber driver. And there is a shocking bit at the start and at the end of the first episode where he's just pulling up, about to take a break, and a taxi driver's in front of him and hurls a, yeah, hurls a falafel on the windscreen. Actually, I might just get out here. I need a coffee. All right, yeah, I can... Yep, just a tick. I'll pull up to the side. Thanks, mate. Yeah, don't forget to give me five stars. Thank you! Uber! Whoa! Thanks. Thanks for that, mate. What is that, a kebab? It's a pretty weird breakfast food. Kind of wasteful too, actually. So, the environment, mate. Oh, good on you. Yep. As the falafel was dumped all over his windscreen by an irate taxi driver who didn't want the Uber driver lining up next to him at the cab rank. I was going to say, that doesn't sound like a very positive representation of a taxi driver once again. Well, I can only trust Ben Phillips' blog as the Uber driver. And again, at the end of the first episode, he's just driving along minding his own business. And a similar thing happens this time with a plastic juice bottle that hits his window. And you're watching it and you're jolted out of your little TV experience watching it and thinking, um, yeah, I mean, two occupations that probably are exploited quite a bit. But it's the first time we've probably seen together. the gig economy represented yeah. in, a, in a sort of like a comic drama in a way on our television screens. It's not something that's sort of percolated through popular culture yet, has it? No, and it just shows the perils. I suppose it is the, you know, the, the modern day, they've gone for the Uber driver rather than the taxi driver, but it really does show the perils of being a, a transportation driver picking people up. If you had to pick a celebrity to be or a TV star to be your taxi driver or Uber driver, who would you have? Uh, well, there was a scheme in New York City in the early 2000s where people didn't know there were seatbelts in the back of the cabs in New York. So they had celebrities warning you, you know, buckle up. I mean, th there was a comment that a few of them were getting annoyed because they only had one of the celebrities on loop. So they were just driving around the whole day. Every time someone got in, they just heard Judge Judy saying, <laughs> saying buckle up. <laughs> uh, I was, I, I have been picked up by taxi drivers who were uh, celebrities. There was a famous Australian actor uh, from Division 4 in the 70s, Jared Kennedy, Sally. He used to drive cabs occasionally, not him, but there was a judge on New Faces in the 70s, Tim Evans. And it was, <laughs> <laughs> and he was like an American comedian, American singer. And it was so cool because I was going to cover the Logies in the press room and my cab turned up and guess who was driving it? A TV celebrity. I was That's just, amazing. I was just in heaven. Do you know who does drive Uber uh, nowadays is Casey Donovan, who was the winner of Australian Idol in 2000 and, is it four? 
but she started driving Uber now and um, she posts about it on her social media and she loves it. She loves it, though. So, she? yeah, if I, could, if I could pick anybody, I would want an Uber from her and I'd, I'd sort of see if I could get her to sing me something. <laughs> what about in the world of animation? In, in recent times, animation TV is huge. We love it, uh, you know, from The Simpsons onwards. Any taxi drivers? Well, there wasn't a taxi driver in The Simpsons, was there? No, I don't think there was. Uh, didn't Mo, Mo, I think Mo um, had a chauffeur service or something like that, I think, where Marge drove for him. But Bob's Burgers. Tell which us about I, Bob's Burgers. Yeah, it's, it's a, a sitcom about a family. They run a hamburger restaurant. And what happens is Bob's daughter, Tina, is coming up. Uh, birthday, 13th birthday is coming up. And she wants to kiss his rival's son at her 13th birthday. She has this dream. And so he has to go and find extra money to pay for the, the smoke machine and the disco ball. So he goes to his landlord and says, can I have a reduction in rent? He goes, no, no, but I, you can drive my cab. And um, <laughs> there's, a, there's a great little montage at the start which featured the beaded seat cover. His first passenger, of course, vomits in his cab. Um, there's people, people up to nefarious things in the back of his car. He gets hit with underpants on his head, has to hose his cab out again, hose his face. Um, but he's, his favourite passengers end up being a group of um, transgender sex workers who end up saving the day at his uh, 13-year-old daughter's birthday. Everything's great. doesn't surprise me that, that narrative art here. <laughs> Brazilian friendly people in the back seat going to save the day. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's a bit of a diversification in a, a cartoon that you might necessarily expect. <laughs> so for the next week, I'll be driving a taxi cab to pay for Tina's party, and I'll be wearing this hat. Cool. Cool, cool hat or job. Job. Hat. Thank you, Dad. This party is going to sizzle. Stop it. Wait, wait, but Bobby, yes. when are you going to have time to drive a cab? Well, I'll work the full day at the restaurant, Lynn, then I'll go drive the cab from 10 p.m. to 6 a.m. All right, all right. Wait, why do you have to wear a hat? Just let this be fun for me. Dad, you won't regret this. When I kiss Jimmy Jr. under the disco ball, it'll be like we're all kissing Jimmy Jr. under <laughs> the disco ball. I call first. <laughs> I've not seen Bob's Burgers, but I now want to. You, and the other one that I have to mention, probably my favourite taxi driver of all time on TV, is an animated one. It's the rusty cab driver in SpongeBob SquarePants. <laughs> because it's that episode where um, they're working at the Krusty Krab and Squidward Tentacles steals SpongeBob's diary and starts reading it out to everyone. And SpongeBob starts crying, he's humiliated, and it makes the paper, you know, evil Squidward. And he revels in the notoriety of being the person that, you know, humiliated SpongeBob at the Krusty Krab by printing out his diary. <laughs> and then next day, something Squidbod's just waiting to go home from work and picks up a cab. And the rusty cab driver turns up and he sees him and he goes, you're the one in the paper. You're the one that read SpongeBob's diary. I'm not picking you up and drives away and refuses the fare. So there was a, a cool cab drive with integrity in um, in <laughs> Now, there's a Bluey episode called Taxi. Here's my contribution to the chat. Yeah. I know that there is a Bluey episode, a relatively new one called Taxi. I think they play a taxi game. How about I go home and watch it with my kid and then I'll let you know next week what it's about. I'll be watching it as soon as I get home for sure. <laughs> what, do you think one of the dogs drives? Or? I think, well, the, the, you know, Bluey is about the games they play at home, so I think they're probably pretending to drive a taxi. All right. And just to finish, all roads lead back to Batman, don't they? Is all, do we have to get Batman into every one of these episodes? Yeah, we do. And Bruce Lee. Um, there was a spin-off from Batman, uh, another cartoon, Green Hornet, comic uh, Green Hornet they did. And it was 
the Green Hornet's a, a media mogul who owns a, the Daily Sentinel, and his offsider is played in the TV show in the 60s by Bruce Lee Cato. They drive this cool car. Um, yeah, he, he's the manservant meets meets chauffeur. Uh, and there was an episode when they, they're more vigilantes than crime fighters, and there, and there was an introductory crossover with um, Batman. And both Batman and Robin and Cato and the, the Green Hornet were dealing with Colonel Gum in Gotham City who was dealing in counterfeit stamps. I just love it. Sally, you need to watch these shows. <laughs> so they, had this, they, they, they both turn up and, you know, they both turn up to arrest Colonel Gum and they fight Colonel Gum and his henchmen and then they sort of start fighting each other as to who's going to, you know, the, the coolest and more law-abiding um, crime fighters. But there is a scene when Batman and Robin sort of save the Green Hornet and Cato and Batman just has to be superior and explain everything. Holy living end. It looked like the end there for a minute, do I wonder? But there was a small niche between the gum applier and the perforating needles. And we are both quite flexible. But there wasn't enough room to use my hornet sting to blast us out until that panel was loosened. But how did the machine take your picture? No doubt an automatic image orthicon of some kind. Wrong, Green Hornet. It was a high-velocity spectroscopic range reflector mini-unit. <laughs> I just have no idea what's going on. Batman's a great '60s sort of sitcom. Um, I've heard of Batman. Yeah, it's, it's very war. Well, wait, not, it, not assuming it, anything at this point. It's, it's very, but it, it's very Warhol. It's very uh, pop art. It's very colourful. So much time you got now to sit on the couch and watch television. So this is what this is all about. Jobs on TV, which is introducing to the wonderful world of television. <laughs> Look, I think I'll just stick with my live stream of Senate estimates. That's what, that's my favourite viewing. Oh, wow. See, that, that that's a way to entertain yourself. Scotty, it's been great having you. We'll get you in a couple of weeks' time to do more jobs on TV. No worries. Hopefully I get a lift home with Oscar the Grouch and his sloppy jalopy because he, <laughs> he runs a cab company too. Scotty Goodings, a TV freak, seeing us off for another week on On The Job, the podcast all about making your working life better. Sally, thank you very much being on in the cab with me on the on the ride today <laughs> no worries francis that'll pay 35 dollars and 40 cents <laughs> you can find sally on the socials uh, search sally rug you can catch me at, at saint frankly on uh, twitter and everywhere else don't forget to give us a rating on your favorite platform and uh, we'll catch you next week on the job bye